Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for March 22, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall tells how one hospital prevailed against sanctions from the Department of Health and Human Services over allegations of data breaches. Now that Javier Becerra has been confirmed as secretary for HHS, what's next on President Biden's health care agenda? Matthew Albright has the Monitor Monday legislative update. We'll also hear reports from health care attorneys Nicole Emanuel and David Glazer, plus Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, direct payments as part of the $1.9 billion COVID-19 relief bill are making their way to bank accounts of American taxpayers. In the meantime, President Biden is scheduled to hit the road this week, visiting states to promote the new law to Americans, that while observing the passage of the Affordable Care Act, now 11 years old. In other news, the CDC has new guidelines about six feet of separation. Now the agency says three feet in classrooms is sufficient for standing by. In the meantime, we have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Now, last week was a week of what did not happen. CMS delayed the implementation of two big rules. The first was the Medicare coverage of innovative technology final rule, which would have allowed certain new technologies deemed by the FDA as breakthrough devices to be covered by Medicare much quicker. The problem here was that although there was support for the concept, when the rule was written, there was no thought given to how these devices would be coded and paid. So Medicare decided to take a little more time to work out the logistics. They're also delaying for a year a rule that requires every HHS policy to be reviewed every 10 years or automatically be canceled. This rule was quite controversial when proposed and finalized and quickly led to several lawsuits. So they chose to wait for the courts to review it before implementing now and then having to change as we've seen them have to do with the 340B and the provider-based clinic payment fiascos. Now, it's been a while since I've talked about anything COVID-related, but there's one article worth mentioning that was recently published. As I'm sure you all have experienced, elective surgery basically stopped with the reports of mortality rates of as high as 25% for COVID-positive patients who had any kind of surgery. Well, in this international study, the 30-day mortality rate after any surgery was found significantly higher for patients who had COVID up to six weeks after their date of diagnosis but by week seven, their mortality risk was back to baseline. Now, I suspect most surgeons are avoiding surgery in patients with recent infection, but it's nice to have a number to use as a guide as when it's safe to proceed. And two other things caught my eye in the news. Last week, an opinion piece was published on MedPage Today entitled, Fraud is Rampant in Medicare Advantage. While the title is a little provocative, the premise of the article of the authors was interesting. They contend that the MA plans scour the records for every possible diagnosis to report to CMS to get them a higher monthly payment for every member. And at the same time, they put in that much effort to try and remove every possible diagnosis from a provider's claim to be able to pay the provider the least amount possible. 
But what the authors contend is that when the MA plans remove diagnoses from a provider's claim as unsupported, they never notify CMS to remove the diagnosis from the calculation of their monthly payment that they receive. Will we be seeing a big lawsuit soon? You gotta wonder. And yesterday, the Washington Post published an article about the demise of the inpatient-only list. And unfortunately, the article contained several of the same errors we've been hearing over and over again. One hospital administrator is quoting a, quoted as saying that there are safety issues, which we know is not true. Another expert lamented the increased cost to patients, despite the fact that these surgeries are paid as a comprehensive APC. And a finance person talked about some mysterious extra facility fee that doesn't really exist. It's really all just a mess. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. OIG just published its annual survey of how well or how poor Nafukus across the country performed in 2020 during the ongoing COVID pandemic. Now, as you know, each state has its own Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, or Mafuku, to prosecute criminal and civil fraud in its respective states. I promise you, you do not want Mafuku to be calling or subpoenaing you unexpectedly. Mafuku's reported that the pandemic created significant challenges for staff, operations, and court proceedings, which led to lower case outcomes in fiscal year 2020. But during this past lower-than-expected recovery year, the Mafuku still recovered over $1 billion from healthcare providers. It was a 48% drop. As Mafuku's initially moved to a telework environment, some staff reported experiencing challenges of conducting work because of limitations with computer equipment, network infrastructure. I mean, I saw this rampant across a lot of cases that I had that, you know, the Zoom calls don't work, people can't get on the internet, uh, the field work was limited, according to staff members and uh, because of the pandemic, Mufuku's reported curtailing in-person field work, such as interviews of witnesses and suspects. And they were further limited because of initial lack of protective equipment that was needed to conduct similar activities, especially in nursing homes and other facilities. Basically, COVID made for a bad recovery year by the Mufuku's. And I remember also the courts were closed for a while, slowing the prosecutorial process. The survey demonstrated, though, how lucrative the Mafuku agencies are despite the pandemic. For every $1 last year spent on the administration of Mafukus, the Mafukus raked in $3.36. In 2020, the Mafukus excluded 928 individuals or entities, despite it being a bad year. There were 786 civil settlements and judgments the vast majority of judgments were pharmaceutical manufacturers. Convictions decreased drastically from 1,564 in 2019 to 1,017 convictions in 2020. Interestingly, looking at the types of providers convicted or penalized, 
the vast majority were personal care services attendants and agencies. The, they were five times higher than the next highest provider type, which were nurses or LPNs, RNs, and PAs. The main Masuku agency won the Inspector General's Award for Excellence in Fighting Fraud, Waste, and Abuse for its high number of case outcomes across a mix of case types. OID also established the desired performance indicators for 2021. OID expects the Mafukus to maintain an indictment rate of 19% and a conviction rate of 89.1%. This survey foreshadows the future. For example, hospice expect audits, $0 was recovered in 2020. Fraud convictions were increased for cardiologists and emergency medicine. And lastly, expect a Masuku rally. The pandemic may not be over, but with increased vaccines and after a down year, Masukus will be bold in the upcoming year as opposed to last year's forced lamb-like behavior. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice, and you can read Nicole Emanuel's reporting on audits in the Auditor Monitor, so be sure to subscribe to the Auditor Monitor. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, and Dr. John Cahall, who is standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's March 22nd, and you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday Standby. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Integrity contractors are rushing to catch up on lost revenue caused by the pandemic. Among their types of audits is the Targeted Probe and Educate Audit, the TPE Audit. The TPE is one of many audits confronting your facility. This one, established in 2017, is on hold, but for how long, nobody knows for sure. What is certain is that your hospital will fare poorly if your claims are part of a TPE audit. So be prepared. Register now for tomorrow's Rack Monitor webcast at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. It features audit specialist Sean Weiss and attorney Robert Lyles. Register now to attend TPE Audits. Learn to be a smarter responder. Purchase today and receive the on-demand version free. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, what could be risky this morning? Well, good morning, Chuck. So I've got a pair of perils. The first is the inexactitude of internet inquiries. So my colleague, Katie Ilton, and I think that might be it for the eyes, was looking to send a skeptical client details of the rule change that permits a nurse practitioner to perform personal supervision of a diagnostic test. You might recall that the 2020 fee schedule permits that. So she knows the rule citation, she knows a lot, So she did a quick Google search, and she wound up at the GovInfo site. Now, the GovInfo page is the government printing office. It's the real deal. It's authentic. You can trust it. It took her a few seconds to realize that the version of the rule she was looking at was from 2010, which is why it didn't have the language she expected to find. It was official. It was just old. So real source, but not a great searching source. So next, she did something that one would think is totally safe. She used the CCH and Teleconnect service that we pay a fair amount of money for. 
that pulled up the version of the rule that noted NPs and PAs can supervise tests during the public health emergency, a change that was made last year, but it wasn't updated to include the fact that that change is now permanent. Even when you pay for a regulatory service, you can't be certain the regulations it provides are accurate. So the second peril involves mistakes by Max. A client did something I discourage. They asked me to, and the contractor the same question at the same time. They asked, hey, we've got a doctor who vacations in January, comes back to work, and then takes another vacation in May. Can we have the same physician cover both vacations? Or does the 60-day limit in the payment under what's now called the fee for time, I used to think of that as the locum tenens exception, that was found in section 30.2.11 of chapter one of the Medicare claims uh, processing manual prevent this. So the contractor, NGS, said it's a problem. They said, hey, January and May are more than 60 days apart, and that uh, a fee for time uh, exception only applies for 60 days. Well, they're wrong. How do I know it? Let's look at the text. So here's how the text defines a continuous period of covered visit services. It begins with the first day on which the substitute physician or physical therapist provides covered visit services to Medicare Part B patients of the regular physician or physical therapist. And it ends with the last day that the substitute physician or physical therapist provides the services. Uh, I'm gonna skip another sentence in here because it's not super relevant. Let's go to the real McCoy. A new period of covered visit services can begin after the regular physician or physical therapist has returned to work. So the way this works is basically the minute the regular person is back, the clock resets and you can do another 60 days. Uh, in fact, you could do it forever. If, if, if you were working every other day, in theory, you could use this exception in perpetuity. The contractor was wrong. So what's the lesson here? One might think that asking the contractor a question is the best way to be sure you've got the right information. But you would think wrong. Contractors get stuff wrong a lot. I generally discourage clients from asking the contractor a question unless they've worked with counsel and determined that the answer is ambiguous and that ambiguity creates enough risk to necessitate a desire to get clarity from the contractor. And the truth is, that doesn't happen very often. So my recommendation is to apply a healthy dose of skepticism to your internet searches and to your queries to a contractor. If you don't, you may find someone going all Doobie Brothers on you and asking, what a fool believes. Let's consider this a premature tribute to April Fool's Day. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Federson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday legislative update. 
The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning. I'm going to touch on a number of health care bills being considered in Congress this past week and maybe give a sense of what the administration might do next in that space. So about half the Democrats in the House have co-sponsored and introduced a Medicare for all bill, bringing that policy back into the headlines. While it has significant support, it is highly improbable that the bill will get out of the House. For its part, the White House is communicating clearly that Medicare for all is not the direction the president wants to go. More in line with the White House, however, are the moderate Democrats that plan on introducing a public option bill sometime in the next few weeks, which was one of Biden's campaign issues. Unlike a Medicare for all plan, instead of replacing private insurance, a public option would put a government run plan in competition with private payers. However, with everything else piling up in this administration's inbox, it's doubtful that Biden and Democratic leadership will push hard on any significant health reform at this time beyond boosting the Affordable Care Act. Also last week, the House passed a bill that would delay the Medicare sequester cuts until December. That bill now goes to the Senate. The sequester cuts were implemented in 2012. They cut Medicare payments to providers by 2%. The CARES Act, passed last March, paused those payment reductions, but they will begin again at the end of this month if the Senate does not pass the House bill. And the Senate is not expected to pass the House bill. Senate Republicans are arguing that the sequester is needed to help pay for the nation's deficit. In fact, because of an anti-deficit provision called the pay-as-you-go or pay-go, if the Senate does not pass the House bill, then the cuts would actually increase to a 4% reduction in Medicare reimbursement starting in October. But we do have a little good news about Medicare reimbursement. This past week, CMS did increase its reimbursement rate for providers administering the COVID vaccines. The national average Medicare rate will now be $40 for each dose, up from the previous $28 a dose. The rate takes effect for vaccines administered on or after last Monday, March 15th. While the increase technically only applies to Medicare reimbursement, CMS has suggested that the rate should also be used by commercial insurance to pay out-of-network providers. And note that some states mandate mandate, uh, that commercial payers base their payments for administering the vaccine on that Medicare rate. For instance, Massachusetts requires commercial plans to pay two times the Medicare rate. Finally, Javier Becerra has been confirmed as the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Up until last week, Becerra was the Attorney General of California and before that served as a California representative in the U.S. House for 12 terms. As Attorney General, Becerra defended the Affordable Care Act in the most recent ACA case, now in front of the Supreme Court. Healthcare access and health equity are also expected to be major themes in Becerra's work. And with that, Chuck, I'm going to send it back to you. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright, Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up next, how one hospital prevailed against allegations of data breaches. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. (music) 
Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. From outpatient and inpatient coders to billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now envision one place, satisfying all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in this centralized hub would be accessible from any location, at any time, with any device, for one affordable price. There is such a place. Introducing the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Get unlimited access to every MedLearn Media Resource in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. View content whenever and wherever on the device of your choosing. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Subscribe today. Healthcare data breaches and the possibility of sanctions for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office for Civil Rights, well, they're a terrifying possibility for healthcare administrators. But one hospital, MD Anderson Cancer Center, recently fought back, and they won. Reporting on the outcome of that decision handed down by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is a physician and an attorney, and he joins us now. So what are some lessons to be learned from this, Dr. Hall? Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. Today, I would like to follow up on Dr. Hirsch's earlier story of the Fifth Circuit's decision in MD Anderson versus HHS. As background, MD Anderson had a laptop stolen and two USB drives were lost. All the devices were unencrypted. Anderson properly disclosed this to HHS, and HHS turned around and slapped them with a total civil monetary penalty of $4.3 million. Later, HHS conceded that it could not defend its penalty and asked the Fifth Circuit to reduce the civil monetary penalty by tenfold to $450,000. And that's where the story gets interesting. I suspect this concession, particularly at such a late stage of the proceedings, likely contributed to the overall condescending tone of the court's decision. But let me start with the key holding, and that is, quote, the government's CMP order against M.D. Anderson was arbitrary, capricious, and otherwise unlawful, end quote. That finding was based on at least four independent reasons, primarily violations of the Administrative Procedure Act. So let's look at the four reasons. The first is the encryption rule. The essence of this section of the, of the decision is that the rule does not require Herculean efforts, but merely a mechanism. In this case, Anderson had a mechanism. Whether it could have been better is not germane. As the court summarized it, the rule does not say anything about how effective a mechanism must be, how universally it must be enforced, or how impervious to human frailty it must be. The regulation simply says a mechanism. Anderson undisputedly had a mechanism, even if it could have or should have been better. Therefore, Anderson satisfied the regulatory requirement, even if the government now wishes it had written a different one. The second reason is the disclosure rule. This section is interesting because the court offers the agency a discussion on basic English and regulatory construction. The court notes that the rule seems to require active disclosure to someone outside the entity. The government's response to that interpretation is that it would make enforcement difficult, but the court concludes that that's a policy argument suited to a rulemaking proceeding, and it's not an acceptable basis for a judicially expanded scope of the regulation as it's currently written. The third reason is the ALJ and DAB's rejection of the principles of administrative law. Anderson was able to demonstrate the disparate treatment of similarly situated entities, yet the ALJ and DAB insisted, quote, 
that the government can arbitrarily and capriciously enforce CMP rules, end quote. The court directly admonished these administrative tribunals, indicating that an administrative agency cannot hide behind fact-intensive nature of penalty adjudications to ignore irrational distinctions between like cases. Finally, the court notes that the penalties assessed directly violated both federal law and the agency's own regulation, and that no amount of enforcement discretion would permit such violations. So what are the take-home messages for this case? The most important is that parties at ALJ hearings can and probably should introduce precedential cases. The second is the recognition that all of these proceedings are subject to regulations from outside of HHS as well as federal law, and the specific language in each of those statutes and regulations actually matters. So in the end, as David might say, find a good lawyer and hold the government to its own rules. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Dr. Hall. That was physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. He was reporting our lead story. Time for our Monday Q&A, otherwise known as our town hall. And David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. They are sort of pouring in. So first, Matthew, a question for you. What the heck was in sequestration? And was like that 2% cut temporary? Can you just explain that to uh, all of us? Because I'd like to know. So here's a shot at that. Sequester means to take away. And so this sequester uh, came from uh, budget disputes back in 2011, I think, uh, and then to take place in maybe 2013. Yeah, Budget Control Act of 2011. So, um, you know, to to speak generally, because uh, I wasn't really paying attention in 2011, uh, there was a budget dispute. And as a kind of threat, they said, well, listen, if you guys don't get your act in order, if you don't uh, pull this budget together, then um, we're going to put 2% uh, Medicare reduction. Uh, So, Initially, it was a kind of threat that was meant to be just uh, t- uh, tentative, temporary. Um, I mean, they put it in for 10 years until 2022, uh, but it was meant to be temporary, but it was meant as a threat so that they can move on other budget and fix the budget. So that budget was never fixed. So those cuts actually did take place. Um, and, and when I was thinking about this, I was kind of thinking about, um, if you would, uh, <laughs> how I might punish my 14 year old. Uh, And this has happened a few times, right? Where I have sequestered her cell phone uh, as a kind of threat to maybe get the grades up or something. But if those grades never come up, then she never gets her cell phone back. And, you know, we got a little tracking thing on there and we like her to call us when she's certain places. And we like to know where she is when she's walking around the neighborhood, right? Uh, And so it actually hurts us more than it actually uh, hurts my daughter. So that might be convoluted, but the idea was it was a threat and then that threat actually didn't do what it was supposed to do. So it kind of got stuck. Uh, and uh, those takeaways then just got stuck. Uh, I don't know if I helped or confused it more, but there's kind of my push at it. Uh, thank you, Mr. Albright. Uh, so, hey, Nicole, <laughs> a question for you. David wants to know, So Medicare and Medicaid, are the rules the same for these two programs? If you know one, do you know them both? That is absolutely inaccurate. Uh, The Medicare rules are all federal, and as we all know, Medicaid is federal and state, but the regulations really do allow each state to run its own Medicaid program. So on a state level, there is a lot of difference between the Medicaid rules state by state. 
and it's interesting because I have cases in so many different states, and you do have to go through and find each individual state's Medicaid rules, which sometimes, David, I know you and I talked about this, sometimes can be hard to find. They sure as heck can. Blake has asked, why are contractors so adept at hiring people who make mistakes? Uh, and then if, if they make a mistake, can you do anything about it? And the short answer to that um, is, I don't know why, why it happens so much, but you can complain to the Medicare regional office. I mean, you can complain to Medicare proper, but I generally go to the regional office where the contractor is if I'm going to try to deal with it at all. Dr. Hall, question for you. Your, your story is a really interesting one here. Many an organization has paid in the same situation that MD Anderson was. So if you're in an organization that settled a HIPAA claim in the past, can you use this MD Anderson litigation to get out of your past fine? Absolutely. There is almost certainly a time limit attached to this, uh, and it probably only is controlling in the Fifth Circuit. So you're going to have to be down here in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, those kind of places where the Fifth Circuit is the controlling circuit. In the other circuits, it should be persuasive. But what this decision actually did is it picked apart much of the language in the regulations and showed that uh, CMS wasn't, the HHS wasn't following its own guidance. And so it, it's crucial. Uh, it, you may have some opportunity to recover some of your money if you are able to use the regulations in an appropriate fashion. Thanks, Dr. Hall. I think that's all we've got time for. Chuck, I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us. We want to thank our outstanding panelists as well, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, and Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our lead story this morning. When we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. When you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. And thanks for sharing your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.